This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. In the news, Air Force One paint scheme problems, F-35s as aggressors, Israeli extended range F-35s, the Delta juniority benefit, Piedmont wage increases, and a U.S. Navy safety stand-down. Also, why the new Top Gun movie doesn't feature the F-35, and more on pilot retirement age. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 705 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me is... Max Trescott, host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year and an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hey, hello. I am fresh back from a seven-hour flight lesson. It's got to be a new, a new record. Long day up in the sky, but always fun and also even more fun to be here with you. Seven hours. Did it take that long to get the student right? <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. Also with us is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian. He's from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everybody. Looking forward to a busy week and the end of the week. Hopefully, we'll get to see some people and some old friends at the Smithsonian. Um, as we record this, it's going to be the following Saturday. So looking forward to that. Yes, we are. But also with us this episode is our main man, Micah. Micah, how are you? I'm doing great, and it's great to be here. You know, I guess uh, when you found out that uh, Rob couldn't make it, you needed to find someone else that sometimes people think has a screw loose. So uh, that would be me. <laughs> there you go. Very good. All right. Hey, before we get started with the aviation news, uh, just uh, a message from Hillel. He writes to us a quick update. The campaign to raise funds for a donation to the EAA in memory of Glenn Towler has ended. Hillel says that over $6,000 was raised. All of it will be donated to EAA and will also include a brick in the airplane mosaic at the Brown Arch at Whitman Regional Airport in Oshkosh, as well as a bronze memorial plaque at the memorial wall in front of the EAA Museum, also a page in the memory book at the museum and online. Now, Hillel tells us that the brick will be ready for AirVenture 2022 next month. The memorial wall plaque will be ready for next year's AirVenture. Hillel expresses a lot of appreciation for everyone who donated. He said, sadly, PayPal doesn't make it easy to send out a thank you to everyone who donated. So thanks to those who did. And thanks to Hillel for organizing this in Glenn's memory. And, you know, today was a perfect day to be able to say that because as we record this, today was Glenn's funeral. And while I didn't go, I've already heard from people who were there that said it was a beautiful service attended by much of his family and uh, was very, very well attended. And he was much appreciated and will be much missed. Uh, very, for sure. For sure. Very nice. All right. Well, let's get started with some aviation news from the past week. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Ready from the South. Mainly ready. First item comes from Politico. This is titled, Hot Mess. There's a problem with Trump's Air Force One paint job. 
Uh, David, how can there be a problem with a paint job? Because dark paint make airplanes overheat. There's a reason why the presidential aircraft or the presidential helicopters are called white tops, and that is to keep the airframe cool. It's also the same reason why every UPS van, although brown on the sides, is white on the top. Well, the paint scheme that was chosen by our former president had dark blue, insignia blue, on the engines, and that was going to cause the engines to overheat. So the Air Force said, well, that's Boeing's responsibility because Boeing isn't locked into a fixed-price contract, so anything over that um, will cost Boeing. Part of the thing was that the overall color scheme was darker colors. It was a very dark red and a very dark blue, um, which are not easy colors to um, work with. I mean, besides the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds, you don't see those colors too often. And this goes all the way back to McDonnell Douglas and their KC-10s, where originally, if you remember the KC-10s, they came out, they were in a beautiful gray and powder blue and white color scheme, and the Air Force hated it. And McDonnell Douglas said, well, you paint it battleship gray, you're nullifying the vo- uh, on the warranty on the aircraft because we're not going to be responsible if it overheats. Sure enough, that's what the Air Force did. And sure enough, that's what they spent three years trying to fix after they started painting it gunship gray. So this is not an uncommon thing that aircraft, based on their colors, besides the color weight of the paint, but the color of the paint causes overheating. Yeah, and if, if you take a look at the current Air Force One scheme, it's a fairly light blue and there's a lot of white in it. If you go back to Cirrus Aircraft, when they first started producing them about 22 years ago, they were virtually completely white with just small little accents, uh, stripes. And it was many years, probably after, probably about 10 years into it, where they were able to uh, get composites that could actually handle the heat. And so now you can get them in all kinds of beautiful colors. But that's the reason all the early ones are all white is because the composites they were using couldn't handle the heat that would be generated by putting darker colors on them. But there's good news. There's good news because neither Boeing nor the Air Force have to worry at all about this paint job at all. They found a solution. They did. They did. And the the first item we mentioned was from Politico. And Politico had a, a follow-up story, I think just literally two days later, and the, the Biden administration announced that these two new Air Force One planes will not change the paint scheme to the darker red, white, and blue scheme. The administration stated that uh, that proposed paint scheme is not being considered because it could drive additional engineering time and cost. And as David mentioned, uh, Boeing has a fixed price contract. It's a $3.9 billion fixed price contract to modify these two 747-8s and uh, you know any any changes and Boeing would have had to uh, had to pay for that I, you kind of wonder this is one of those things where you kind of wonder how come nobody thought of this or picked up on it previously especially David you know with with this history of um, issues with dark paint on aircraft but apparently nobody did my conspiratorial mind 
Uh oh. Oh, this will be good. I know. When 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 I first heard this, what my conspiratorial mind was, we were looking for a um, problem to go with an answer. Ah. And um, I I basically I don't think there were many people in the world who actually thought that painting Air Force One in anything but its traditional colors was a good idea. So I think this was a way for the Air Force Boeing. Boeing even has bought, had bought the normal Air Force One paint um, for the aircrafts before the um, suggested paint scheme change. This is probably a plausible deniability. It makes sense that it doesn't work, but I have a feeling that everybody involved was looking for a way to get back to the other paint scheme. I mean, one of the other things I've said was that if Air Force One traditionally went to a new paint scheme, the rest of the executive fleet, which are modeled after that same paint scheme, would also have had to have changed. So the C-32s, the C-37s, the rest of the executive fleet um, would also have to change. So I don't think anybody in their right mind was looking forward to changing the color scheme to Air Force One, especially us people who are historically think that it's probably one of the prettiest aircraft ever. So, But, you know, Boeing can't get any good news on the VC-25B without having more bad news. Oh, I know. It's true. Uh, DefenseOne.com reports uh, Boeing can't find enough workers to build the new Air Force One. Uh, there have been just so many problems uh, with this. Uh, we, we talked uh, some time ago about the subcontractor, one of the subcontractors, GDC Technics, and Boeing canceled their contract. They were supposed to do, well, a variety of engineering aspects, but uh, maybe most significantly the interior for these two aircraft. And I guess there were there were delays or, I mean, there's just other performance issues uh, that, that Boeing saw, or that was their, that was their opinion. Um, so they canceled that contract. I think GDC Technics uh, filed for bankruptcy some time ago. So there was all that delay. And now we've got this, uh, Micah, the, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, says that Boeing is having difficulty finding enough skilled mechanics to work on these airplanes. Uh, but also significantly, because these are presidential aircraft or would be used uh, to carry uh, the, the president, is that there are a, sort of additional uh, security requirements for the people that work on the plane. Um, that's, uh, you know, very, uh, very typical. So in a, in a tight labor market, when you're trying to find qualified mechanics, that's, that's hard enough right now. But you also have to find individuals who can pass the, the strict security requirements. Yeah, it's just a no-win situation, and trying to pass those background checks aren't necessarily easy. Uh, it's di very difficult if you're going to have uh, uh, any kind of any foreign workers, and and you just have to be able to get through the whole security clearance as well as have the skills. And uh, as we've talked about before, the part of the problem with these particular uh, uh, aircraft is that they have to tear everything out in order to then rebuild it, and you have to have the security clearance on both sides, the tear out and the rebuild. I think Boeing has uh, stated publicly that this uh, 
$3.9 billion contract is something that they maybe regret signing, at least with these with these terms, and they've lost a significant amount of money on this project so far. Um, one one last thing, and maybe David knows, but the the current paint scheme that we see on Air Force One that goes back quite a quite a ways, doesn't it, David? Does that go back to uh, to the Kennedy administration? It does. Jacqueline Kennedy was co designer, um, so it basically it was originally done on the seven oh sevens to provide um, a color scheme that was traditional and it definitely had um, it was done and off of the top of my head I can't remember who the the uh, very famous artist was um, who did designs for various manufacturers and such but it was designed back in the Kennedy administration and went through all of the 707s and then of course when the 747s came aboard they it's also on again like I said the C32s which are the two uh, 757s as well as the C-37s, which is the uh, 737. So the whole that whole scheme is carried through on all of the executive flight aircraft for the Air Force. So And um, it's probably the single most recognizable 747 in the world with that paint scheme. So seeing something change that iconic would have, would have been um, heartbreaking. I, yeah, I can understand that. I actually rather like the uh, the darker paint scheme. I think it looks pretty good. But I think, you know, even without the potential uh, overheating problems, I think there's a lot to be said for the tradition of the of the color scheme that we've had for, for all these years. And as you said, David, it's recognizable around the world. And believe it or not, it has changed once. Believe it or not, Jimmy Carter stripped the colors so they would they would be more fuel efficient during the fuel crisis in the seventies. Wow, there's a bit of trivia. The, yeah, there's there's obscure trivia for you, uh, but but that didn't last very long. Part of it is, you know, sometimes you want an aircraft to or you want to have a signal to everybody, you know. And um, Air Force One, when it's parked on a tarmac is Air Force One, and there's no I, no misidentifying it. So, you know, as a, as a high-value um, high asset, you kind of like it to stick out like a sore thumb so that people know, you know, it's there and that it's going to be well-guarded, et cetera. So having it look like a normal airliner um, probably wouldn't work so well. Not to mention an airliner of a defunct, lacking a airliner that went out of business previously based the color scheme it was based on. So, but let's move on to really cool things like F thirty five aggressors. Aggressors, yes. The drive reports that the U.S. Air Force sixty fifth Aggressor Squadron or AGRS has been reactivated at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. Uh, using the F-35A Lightning II. You can't get around using A-4s and, and F-5s forever. Um, you you need pure equivalent aircraft and, um, in other words, fifth-generation aircraft. We, we, have, we all know that, and we've talked about this, that China has worked really hard to develop their stealth aircraft capabilities. And, of course, 
the Russians also have. So we have near-peer adversaries now that are flying more advanced aircraft than we were flying with our aggressors. Um, now, the 65th has been on and off for a while. Um, the 65th was flying F-15s and was retired for economic reasons in the last um, financial crisis where we had sequestration. The F-15s were sent back out to units. Um, so they were using F-15s and F-16s. So the F-16 stayed as aggressors. But the F-16s do, and as well as all of our contractors who are flying things like A-4Ks from New Zealand and F-5s from Switzerland um, and now Israeli F-16s, they are fourth generation or three plus generation aircraft. We need to have something that will teach our pilots how to fight fifth generation aircraft. So we're giving them um, F-35s to fight. Now, these are F-35s that are early block production. They're, so they are not as capable as what's currently um, being fielded in the front lines, but they will provide um, a capability that currently our, aggress our aggressor squadrons don't have. Um, there's even one already painted up in aggressor camouflage, so it looks like a bad guy. But, yeah, it will definitely provide practice in using low visibility, low observable aircraft, um, which we currently don't have as aggressors. Now, of course, the aggressors will be taking place at Nellis, so um, it'll the 65, 65 will be at Nellis, so it's primarily for the red flags. Um, what will be interesting to note will be when the aggressors, the 65th, will fly. Um, we degrade our aircraft when we have um, peers or, you know, flying with us or foreign nations flying. So sometimes they degrade the capabilities of the aircraft because they don't want people to know fully what, even our allies, fully what we're capable of doing. So it'll be interesting to see if we have a very international red flag, whether the um, Air Force will be putting up these fifth generation um, aggressors or not. So, but definitely good for the Air Force for recognizing that um, it was they we they needed this threat capability, and you know it, it was either that or go to the Thunderbirds. You know, I mean, it was. Ironically, the Blue Angels that we're flying right now, those Super Hornets, those E's and F's, those are first-generation E and F's. So they're great for things like demonstration squadrons, but they're not necessarily great for frontline combat units. So these F-35s won't be able to be upgraded, but they definitely will provide a complete threat for our next-generation pilots. Yeah, it sounds like it's a a good use for the early block F-35s. And I mean, as we've, I think, described in the past, the F-35 program was intentionally uh, operated in a way where uh, they they didn't really try to uh, ship the first, the first planes with uh, full capabilities all figured out and tested out and developed that uh, there, there's sort of a progression of improvements block by block and, uh, you know, getting us to where we are today, which must be pretty, pre is the F-35, well, nothing's ever done, but David, is it, is it essentially done now? I don't think so. I think, I, I mean, part of what the F-35 program was designed to be, designed to do uh, 
was to be able to be upgraded easily going forward. Now, that's been a challenge, but... And with other countries coming on, I don't see there'll be a there'll be an end of production for the F thirty five anytime soon because we keep getting new nations coming on um, to take these capabilities. And with new nations coming on for, into NATO, um, the F thirty five is becoming quite the choice for NATO countries. So you can almost see Finland getting them, and possibly Sweden. You know, those neutral countries as well as other countries. Now, Turkey, of course, didn't get them because of, they, um, because of the weapon systems that they purchased from Russia. But other countries will eventually, you know, take on the F-35. And it's going to be probably the mainstream aircraft like the F-16 is forever. Now, Micah, we, we know that Israel has had F-35s for, uh, for some time, but... Uh, they provided an example of a country that's working to make modifications so that they're more suited to the to the mission that they have, right? Yeah, uh, there was a, another article in uh, in the war zone, the drive uh, in the war zone about uh, the Israeli F thirty five I's, which I is for Israel, and um, Israel has some specific needs. In fact, uh, they uh, they need to be able to extend the range, and it seems that Israel has found a means to do that by uh, they have found a way to extend the range of the F-35 by adding extra fuel to them, although the article says they don't know exactly how it's been done. There's been some work done that way with external tanks, and they think that this may be uh, some kind something to do with conformal tanks. But uh, the problem with adding extra fuel in external or conformal tanks is it changes the stealth rating of the F-35. And Israel is specifically trying to do this so they can get into Iran and back, uh, I'm sorry, Iraq and back, uh, without uh, any concerns uh, for refueling with their seven uh, KC-135s. David, I'm wondering if you know anything about uh, how they're looking at extending the range and, and adding more fuel to them. Uh, they're going to do it by drop tanks, according to this article, which which is not anything out of the ordinary. I mean, uh, your drop tanks have been, of course, used since World War II. And basically, you use the drop tanks precisely to drop them. So... It'll be, I mean, it's using a technique that the Israelis used when they attacked the Osric Iraq, uh, reactor in Iraq. Um, they used all the fuel in the tanks first, popped the tanks, and then you, you regain the stealth capabilities of it. So um, range is important, you know, and lack of air-to-air refueling, which is also important. So, um but yeah, I mean, right now the F-35 is not designed for fuel tanks, but doesn't mean that, um, but the F-22 does have long range fuel tanks for, but it's primarily, it's primarily designed for transporting the aircrafts from one base to another are the long range tanks. Um, they don't necessarily, aren't necessarily designed to be flown in combat because they severely reduce the state of stealth capabilities. But if you have drop tanks, you can always punch them off and that probably would reduce the stealth capabilities. And both of you have Israel going deep into Iraq. I think it's Iran that typically they've been looking at missions to do. Right. And 
the tankers that they have now, they have seven tankers, I understand, in their uh, in, in their fleet, David. Uh, these are these are what older KC one thirty five. They're actually seven oh sevens. That is really um, so. They they aren't even KC one thirty fives. They were seven thirty seven oh sevens. Now Israel has also bought um, the the KC forty six um, the the Pegasus from Boeing. So they eventually will replace the one the seven oh sevens, but. Um, yeah, they they definitely need a tanker that can take them into combat. Um, and right now, the seven hundred seven probably is not what you would want to take into combat because they're old. If they if we think if we think our one thirty fives are old, the seven hundred sevens for Israel are equally as old. All right, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and uh, talk a little commercial mix. Uh, this is kind of interesting. Uh, a, a juniority benefit. What is a juniority benefit? Darn if I know. <laughs> but it certainly got my attention when I saw the uh, the title of this story that comes from businessinsider.com. It says Delta's juniority benefit is saving the airlines loads of cash after many of its higher paid workers took buyouts in 2020, bucking the recent trend of companies paying more. And what I thought was really interesting was that when the airlines accepted money from the U.S. government uh, during the pandemic, apparently Delta took a decidedly different strategy from American and United in terms of how to use that money. And the results are they have really lowered their uh, payroll cost. Uh, the option that they choose to do was to offer buyouts to a much larger percentage of their workforce. And as a result, they uh, offered buyouts to roughly about a fifth of their workforce or nearly 20,000 workers, including uh, 2,000 pilots. Meanwhile, the uh, early money uh, was not uh, uh, that American and United accepted and the Delta could have accepted, uh, did not permit uh, furloughs. And uh, six months into it, I believe, when the second round of funding came around, furloughs were permitted in that point. American and United went ahead and furloughed many of the workers that they had uh, kept on. But as the uh, economy bounces back, American and United are required to rehire the furloughed workers. Now, many of those have much higher salaries. And essentially what Delta did is they substantially lowered their cost base by getting, uh, you know, giving buyouts to many of their higher paid employees. So here's some of the numbers. They said in the two years prior to the pandemic, the average median uh, employee wage at Delta was $118,000 compared to $74,000 at United and $61,000 at American. So substantially higher pay. But by 2021, Delta had reduced their cost so that their average employee now is getting $70,000 compared to $78,000 for United and $62,000 for American. So they've really uh, lowered the uh, the total cost of uh, you know employment uh, by having chosen to use their money to to do buyouts, whereas the others used uh, you know furloughs. So to me, it's just fascinating that major airline companies use different strategies uh, with the money that was available during the pandemic and got different outcomes. And uh, Max, I got out my calculator and started uh, uh, doing some division on the numbers that were in the Business Insider article, and sort of to put it in, in perspective, in in twenty twenty one, those numbers that you said indicate a uh, drop in Delta's workforce cost of 40%. And at the same time, United's was up almost 5%. And American was up 
about 2.6%. So United and American going up a little bit over pre-pandemic, but Delta down at 40%. That's just huge. And Delta's, Delta's been hiring. They added 11,000 workers in 2021. Um, they said last year they uh, posted 3,000 positions for flight attendants. And they said they received nearly 40,000 applications, so many. So they had to shut down the employment portal. There was just uh, uh, the volume of response was, was too much. But it is really interesting to see how the, uh, the, the strategy of buyouts from Delta versus the strategy of furloughs from the, uh, the other two. United in American has played out. I don't know if that's a shrewd business calculation on Delta's part several years ago or, you know, they, they, they kind of lucked out with the better strategy. But in any event, uh, they, they're, they're coming out in pretty good shape. Well, and the people that are hiring tend to be younger, and so I think that's where they're talking about juniority. Uh, so they're they're coming out of this with a much younger workforce than their competitors, which is a really clever strategy. Yep. And the yeah, and the younger workforce means that they're getting because they're new hires, they don't make as much as the uh, the senior people. But I think, uh, as you were saying, Max, I think it was probably a shrewd decision on Delta's part. They are a very shrewd operator in in many different ways, and. Which brings me to the thought I'm wondering, and I would love to find out how they're doing in this fuel crisis in terms of the cost of jet fuel right now, because Delta many years ago bought their own refinery as well. So I can't imagine that they are being hit anywhere near as hard as the other airlines since they control the refining refining process. Yeah, an update on that would be uh, uh, very interesting to see how that aspect of it is played out. But, uh, you know, wages, pilot wages are an interesting topic. In fact, we see something from uh, Piedmont Airlines that uh, this is a memo that was published to pilots by Piedmont's uh, VP Flight Operations, Stephen Kiefer, and also uh, MEC Chairman Captain Ryan Miller. MEC is Master Executive Council. It's part of the ALPA Pilots Union. Yeah, it's an interesting agreement. It's a tentative agreement, I guess, Max. It is. So it's a contract extension that takes them through July 2029, which they say will provide industry-leading pay for their pilots. And the numbers are pretty impressive. Uh, they say that with a, well, the pilot wages will be 50 to 78% higher or 57% on average than the next highest paid regional carrier, including all bonuses. Now, what they're including in this is that through August 2024, they're going to include a 50% premium on wages for all pilots over the roughly next two years, which tells me they're working really hard to try and retain those pilots. The problem, of course, has been that the regionals have had to mothball some of their planes because they just haven't had enough pilots to fly them. And so by adding a 50% premium, I'm sure they're hoping to keep their pilots on a little bit longer. Uh, what they have said is that uh, they've made a commitment to pilots that they're guaranteed to flow through to American to be hired at a major carrier within five years or to be paid at the top of the scale until they flow over to American. So it looks like they're uh, really putting their money where their mouth is to make sure that they keep uh, you know, retaining the pilots and hopefully are therefore able to you know, keep from having to mothball more airplanes. 
I just want to point out uh, that uh, when I first read the story, I thought, Piedmont, wait a minute, they went out of business years ago when they were absorbed by U.S. Air. But this is a completely different Piedmont Airlines. It didn't come into existence until 1993 and is a wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines. They're a regional, but it's a regional that's actually owned by American. I, I don't see any any downside to this uh, tentative agreement. I mean, maybe there's some aspects of it that make it, Somewhat less attractive, but on the, on the face of it, this just looks like um, uh, something that would make Piedmont uh, pilots extremely happy. And my guess is it's going to be something that the other carriers will have to respond to. So they will probably be increasing wages as well. And that's probably good because certainly inflation is up considerably. So pilots are going to need the, uh, the boost in income. You know, uh, one organization that's not real happy is the uh, United States Navy. And we've seen a number of crashes uh, in the very recent past, as as well as uh, several others. And uh, the Navy is, well, I guess they're starting to take some action here. Yeah, they had a uh, a full stand down today as we're recording this, June 13th. Any non-deployed aircraft uh, were in a total stand down uh, to review all uh, safety procedures and see if there is something in common with with all these accidents within the culture of uh, the aviation, naval aviation. Uh, it's pretty scary how much has happened in the past few months and some, again, very recently. Yeah, in the past few weeks, we've seen Navy pilot Lieutenant Richard Bullock. Uh, he was killed in uh, on June 3rd. His F-A-18E Super Hornet crashed during a training mission. We also uh, saw five U.S. Marines killed in an MV-22B Osprey crash, that also during a training mission. And a helicopter went down during a training flight. Uh, in this case, uh, thankfully, uh, there were no fatalities. One person suffered non-life-threatening injuries, uh, but that was uh, another another crash. And this is um, uh, something that, that I can relate to, this concept of a safety stand-down day. In, in the article in the LA Times that we'll have in the show notes, they talk about a, a pause, flight operations being paused to conduct safety reviews and training. And, and we always call these san- uh, safety stand-down days where, you know, you have a you know recognition by management, by organization leadership, whatever's the appropriate organizational term, that says that, okay, <laughs> we're not operating as safely as as we should be. We're seeing the impact of something. We're just going to stop. We're just going to, we're going to take a day off or whatever length of time. And we're, we're going to all, we're going to, you know, review the safety process, make sure that the awareness is there, see if there are any deficiencies in training or that sort of thing that that need to be addressed. And uh, as you said, Micah, they had one today, June 13th, as we record this, and that was for all flight operations that uh, were not deployed. They had that that safety stand-down day or that pause today. Uh, As for deployed units, uh, they were to pause at, quote, the earliest possible opportunity. So it, it extends to them as well. Yeah, um, there were, uh, the, the, you know, you, you talked about those three crashes. It was June 3rd was when the, the F-18, FA-18 went down. It was June 8th that the MV-22 went down. And it was the next day on the 9th that uh, the MH-60 went down. And then 
back in March, uh, we lost another MV-22 where uh, four Marines were killed, and that was over Norway. You remember, may remember that. And mm-hmm. also in March, uh, an E-2D Hawkeye went down in uh, in Virginia, killing one of the crew members. So there's uh, there's some definite concerns, and I think this is a, a, a good thing to do to take a good, solid look at what's going on. Indeed. All right, what's up with the geeks? Max Trescott, what have you been up to lately? Well, I just wanted to make mention of something that will be of interest, I think, to uh, a lot of pilots, anybody who's interested in military aviation in particular. Um, Alan Brown, who is the chief designer and later the program manager of the F-117 Stealth Fighter, uh, passed away, and so I did a tribute to him on uh, this week's episode of Aviation News Talk episode 235. Uh, I recorded that interview with Alan quite some time ago. Um, He was a friend of mine. I've known him for about the past nine years. And how we got to know each other is kind of unusual. Uh, We both fly RC airplanes and we're both in the same club. So I used to see Alan probably every week or two. We'd hang out and get to talk. And the stories this guy could tell. Oh, my gosh, the stories. I mean, it was just fascinating to hear from a guy who worked in the Skunk Works, uh, who was basically um, spent his life in aeronautical engineering on just all kinds of amazing projects, but for which he's most famous would be the the F-117 stealth fighter. Uh, and so anyway, I shared some of the stories that I remember him telling me and also the uh, interview that we did. And uh, all I can say is a great man has passed on. He was uh, 92 years old. He was almost a renaissance man. I mean, this guy, from what I could see, was was brilliant, had his fingers involved in just all kinds of interesting things, not just to aerospace uh, engineering. So I'd encourage anybody who wants to listen to it to uh, go to aviationnewstalk.com slash 235. Yeah, check that out. I remember the first time I saw an F-117. I mean, we'd all seen photographs and marveled at the design and how strange-looking an aircraft it was. But some years ago, there was an air show or something in Massachusetts at Westover Air Reserve Base, and they had an F-117 there. Uh, They didn't fly it. or Well, they had to fly it to get it in there, but they... There was no uh, demonstration flight associated. It was just a static display, and it was uh, surrounded by a double ring of you know stanchions with with rope, and circulating between the two rings around it were some uh, well some pretty serious looking military men with uh, fully automatic rifles, and it was really clear that you weren't going to step over that you know over that barrier without consequence but just to you know to see it up cl- you know relatively up close and uh, just uh, as i said just marvel at the at the design you just look at that and say gosh how does that thing ever even fly interesting design fascinating yeah, and I, I like to think of it as being an airplane that was almost designed more by an electrical engineer than by an aerospace engineer. Yeah. Because, you know, what they concluded was there was just no way to take existing designs and bring down the radar cross-section as small as they really needed to. So this was really, des- you know, designed with the goal of you know, minimal radar cross-section and, oh, by the way, if we can make it how to fly, <laughs> that's that's a bonus. But certainly the early shapes that they uh, came up with 
uh, you know, it looked like they were going to be impossible to, to get the fly, but uh, they kept evolving it and they made it work. I remember when it was being uh, discussed, you know, back before anybody saw it, but they were talking about just the stealth fighter. And back then, uh, they were still uh, plastic models were still very popular. And there was the Ravel company that you all remember that's still in existence. And there was the Aurora company. And they both came out with concept models of what the stealth fighter was going to be. And I remember looking at them with my father. I was still, I mean, I was probably 18 or 19. I don't know. And I said, look, one is Buck Rogers. If you remember Buck Rogers, very, very square and very, very, very angled. And one is a Buck Rogers spaceship. The other is a Flash Gordon spaceship because Flash Gordon was very round and very symmetrical and all that. I said, there's no way that that square one's going to fly. It's going to definitely go uh, Flash Gordon. And then it came out and I said to my dad, Buck Rogers won. Hmm. And for those of you who, who may not know, th- those were serials from the 1920s and 20s and 30s. We were talking earlier about paint, and one of the things I learned when I was just doing some research to put together the episode was that when they went to put on camouflage paint, I think it was on the the half blue, the prototype prior to the F-117, they were trying to disguise the flat surfaces. So they used 12 different shades of, of grayish paint, if you will, and white and so on. And they painted it in a way to disguise the fact that it was such an angular aircraft. And the reason was they had it at Area 51, and they just didn't want the, the daytime civilian people at the north end of the field looking over and kind of seeing what this was. Now, normally they would stick it back in a hangar but uh, just to avoid risking that, they, they you know painted it up. And it was really interesting when you look at it. Uh, indeed, it was a little difficult to discern the angles just because of all the, the clever painting they did. Definitely one-of-a-kind aircraft. All right, Micah, how about you? Well, I am sorry to say that I will not be attending Innovations in Flight this coming weekend. It's, uh, I guess, going to be the second one that I ever missed, and I'm really sorry about that, but it just didn't work. But on the other hand, I'm really happy because it also happens to be the weekend of the christening of the USS John Bazalone. And I've been invited to attend that christening up at Bath Ironworks. And the Bazalone, it's DDG-122, is an Arleigh Burke class Flight 2A guided missile destroyer that's named after uh, John Bazalone. And some of you may know who he is. And I know this isn't necessarily aviation related, but he's a hero of mine. He was... uh, he enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, back in 1943. That was after he was honorably discharged after serving three years in the Army. And uh, he wanted to join the, the Marine Corps, and he did, and he became a gunnery sergeant. And uh, he won the Medal of Honor for heroism above and beyond the call of duty in the Battle of Henderson Field on Guadalcanal. And uh, then he was sent home on a war bonds tour, but could have stayed home for the rest of the war, but didn't like it. He went back to the Marines and went back on to Iwo Jima, where he lost his life and uh, received the Navy Cross. And he was the only enlisted Marine of World War II to get both of those decorations. And uh, I'm just really, really excited to be able to attend the christening of this ship. Of uh, It's named after one of my heroes. That sounds really exciting. Uh, do they still smash a bottle of champagne on the bow for... Or uh, these kinds of uh, ship christenings? Yes, they do. And uh, it doesn't go down the ways anymore into the water. That's not how they do it. They float it out of a dry dock. But uh, I was able to attend the the christening of the USS Inua at Bath Ironworks uh, a few years ago. And, yep, they they smash uh, a bottle of champagne on it. And uh, I'm really looking forward to to seeing this happen. So uh, that's uh, 
That's what I'm doing this weekend. And then I've got other news going on too. I don't, I think I've mentioned it before, but uh, Brian Coleman, our former associate producer and I have, uh, well, it's Brian who started a podcast called the journey is the reward.org. And uh, he uh, is working on attaining his 1K status with United Airlines flying all over the world as he does so he can have lifetime 1K status. And uh, he started a podcast. We have 12 episodes out. I think the uh, the 12th is going to be coming out this week. And if you're interested in hearing uh, about his journey and two old guys fetching about travel, uh, tune in sometime. It's the journeyisreward.org. And uh, we're having a lot of fun. Hi, Max and team. This is Brian, and I wanted to give you a little update on the status of my project, The Journey is the Reward. Mike and I have now recorded 11 episodes, and I'm starting to make some great progress on my goal of obtaining 1K status for life on United Airlines. I just returned from South Africa, and Micah and I discussed the adventure on our last show. I only have about 246,000 miles to go. Sadly, I don't think I'll get it done by February, but I think I should be able to reach it by June of next year. If anyone wants to follow along my journey or listen to the podcast, they can go to thejourneyistherewarded.org. And again, remember the .org part as .com was taken. Anyway, thank you to everyone who is sending questions about my journey. It's really become a fun part of the podcast. Mike and I are amazed on a weekly basis as to how many people are listening to the show. So if you have time, please join us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Next up for me is a quick trip to Pennsylvania to attend my nephew's wedding, but that'll be on American Airlines, so it won't count. And then in late August, I'll be off to Singapore. Thanks again for your time and for listening. And remember, fly safely. This is your former associate producer and global traveler, Brian. Boy, I'm behind. I've been out in the woods for for quite a while now. Although, Micah, you know, I was, where was I? Uh, uh, Very southern New Hampshire, I think. And uh, for for some strange reason, listening to the radio, which I don't think I've listened to the radio in, well, I can't remember the last time I listened to the radio. I mean, like the real radio. Um, but uh, it was on in the car. And as I'm listening, I, I hear this voice. And I thought, I know this voice. This is the director of the Portland Jet Port. And uh, it was a conversation with, uh, uh, with him, a news story. So there is some news about the uh, Portland International Jet Port. It is really great news. Yeah, Paul Bradbury, who we had on the show as a guest a couple of times and talked about this project. Runway 11-29 has been uh, resurfaced, and it was closed for the past, oh, I don't know, close to 13 weeks. But they were supposed to reopen today. They finished early, and it actually reopened Friday night. Uh, instead of opening on tonight, uh, Monday night, they opened Friday night three days early, which is unbelievable for a project like that. And I actually drove by there today, and you can see how shiny and beautiful that runway is. And uh, I haven't spoken with Paul about it, but he must be thrilled. And uh, the Portland Press-Herald did an 
article about it. And it's already, if you look through the comments, there's, there's a couple of interesting comments. One uh, says, uh, Oh, bummer. I enjoyed the planes flying over my neighborhood on line to the short runway, a frequent reminder that people are out and about living their lives. And uh, somebody else said uh, it was fun counting around 30 planes fly overhead on Sunday, June 5th. Now it's only tweet, tweet. And then (laughs) somebody else said, and this is my favorite. I wonder how long it'll take in South Portland for somebody to start complaining about airplanes flying over their houses again, even though they bought a house near the airport. And I swear that wasn't me. Ah, <laughs> I, 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 I saw that. I, I thought that might have been you, Mike, but it wasn't. Uh, we should all commit to making that post every time we see that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. On to some listener mail. We heard from our friend Srinand. He said, dropping in a very quick note on the ALPA issue. This is talking. We were talking about uh, retirement age for pilots. He said, in the words of Tick and Tack, the Tapper brothers, the ALPA stance is bogus. Srinan <laughs> writes, one, Japan allows airline pilots to fly until they are 67. They only fly domestic legs. Australia does one better. You can fly until you can keep your medical. Now, because of the ICAO rule of 65, they can't fly over international waters, but they do fly on domestic routes. And then two, until 2009, the retirement age in the U.S. was 60. The ICAO retirement age was 65, so that ended up in many captains retiring from United and then going over to airlines in India and the Middle East and flying five more years. But when the FAA changed the rule in 2009, these very pilots were now legal to fly in the United States, and that's exactly what they ended up doing, albeit in non-U.S. registered airplanes. The ALPA stance in 2009 can be seen here. And this is a, a piece from AIN Online from July 2007. ALPA reviews, uh, reverses course on opposition to age 60 rule. Uh, in that AIN Online article, they say in late May of that year, 2007, I guess, the executive board of the Airline Pilots Association, or ALPA, voted by an 80% margin to end its four-decade opposition to any uh, efforts to raise the limit. The union said that in the face of concerted efforts to change the rule by Congress and the FAA, the executive board directed that union resources be committed to protecting pilot interests by exerting ALPA's influence in any rule change. Uh, Back to Srinan, he said, um, third item, it, it is true that The pilots above 65 won't be able to fly internationally, and that would mean retraining them from wide-body to narrow-body airplanes as well as displacement for the other pilots. So he did some, some calculating here as to the number of pilots. He said Southwest, zero, no pilots. Why? Because one airplane, one airplane type, so no retraining required. Same for Spirit, no, no, uh, pilots af- affected, one airplane type, so no retraining. Now, American has 120 wide bodies. Srinan said, let's assume eight sets of pilot per plane, and half of that are close to 65, so that would be 480 pilots. Delta has about the same as American, so there's another 400-odd pilots, he calculates. Uh, similarly, for United, about 400-odd pilots. 
Not that pilots are odd for those airlines, but rough numbers. So while 1,200 uh, pilots, at the most conservative estimate, might need to be retrained, that's not even 5%, 10 at most, of the total pilot population of the airlines. So if done in a planned manner, it would cause minimum displacements, and the choice would be great. For example, pilots could possibly decide to, uh, at around 63, either stay long haul and retire at 65 or move fleet and get two more years. Uh, Shreenan says the reason you couldn't connect the dots is because the dots are on different pages of the book, which is a great analogy. So he closes, love the show. As always, looking forward to episode 1000. Boy, that's a scary thought. And that's from uh, Shreenand. You know, I'm curious about what he said about pilots downgrading into the smaller sized aircraft, because I wonder how many would actually do that because pilot pay is based on the size of the aircraft that you fly. And when you downgrade, you're making less money per hour. So I'm wondering how many would choose to do that versus just retire at that point. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it in part depends on how important flying is to you and your you know desire to to keep doing it. Yeah, a pay cut would be, well, it would be a blow, I guess. But by that point in a pilot's life, in a commercial pilot's life, they're they're probably, well, they probably have their retirement nest egg all uh, socked away by that point. So it might not affect them too much. I don't know. Well, it also depends on if there's a pension, if the retirement pension is based on the last ah, three years or the highest three years. That's a good point, too. Social Security, too, right? Isn't that based on your most recent I think salary? So. Yeah. Well, there's also the spouse factor as well. I don't want to see you around this house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go out there and fly. Get out there. Go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Tom wrote to us, he said, three good reasons why the F-35 was not featured in Top Gun Maverick. So uh, this, this was kind of uh, interesting. Uh, of course, in the movie, they use the Super Hornets, the F-A-18 Super Hornets. And some people have asked, why do they use an F-35? I mean, that's the, the current top of the line. Why not? So uh, in this article, this is from 1945.com. They have three reasons why they use the Super Hornets. Uh, instead of the F-35, which are kind of interesting. Uh, the first is that uh, with the F-35, there would be no heart-stopping, adrenaline-pumping, dogfighting scenes because the F-35 is not really a dogfighting aircraft. Another reason they give is that uh, with the uh, F-35 leading the way, they say, for a, com a combination of manned and unmanned systems, there would have been no dramatic flights into the valley of death lined with air defense systems. And third is in the future, there will be alternative ways for the joint force to address ground-based air defenses to those presented in the film. So uh, the, uh, the F-35, the joint strike fighter, they say, fundamentally changes both air-to-air -air and air-to-ground operations. And the, the movie features the kind of uh, operations we're used to with with dogfights and, and all those other aspects of it. So those are the three reasons they give why the F-35 was not featured in, top, in the Top Gun Maverick movie. They do mention, though, that some people cite another reason, which is a, of a completely different kind, which is that the, 
the F-35C, right, the naval variant, only comes in a single-seat version. And that if uh, you're trying to uh, create good cinemagraphic imagery uh, in the cockpit, it, it's just a it, it's a problem that would be too difficult to overcome. A single-seat jet just doesn't really kind of lend itself to the kind of photography that you're looking for. So that might be another factor as well. Well, especially with all the trouble that Max has been having with his GoPros. <laughs> you know what? I'm getting better at it. What can I say? Practice, practice, practice. You know, I'm not quite sure the point they're making about the single-seat version. Are they saying that since it's not a two-seat version, they don't have enough room to stuff all the camera equipment in? Or are they saying that from a story narrative standpoint, you need two people in the cockpit? What do you, what do you think the point is they're making here? Most of the footage shot in the movie of them flying the aircraft were shot in the backseat of an F-18F. When you see um, Tom Cruise take off from an aircraft carrier in his supposed single seat, it's Uh, because the cameras were on the deck of the two-seat aircraft. Right. Most of the air-to-air footage was done because of the two-seat aircraft. There also is the other small fact that really the... F-35C has just reached operational capabilities with the Navy, and there aren't that many of around. And so it was much easier to use aircraft that were not um, frontline capable, which is what they were using from VX-9. Um, in fact, some of those aircraft actually went off to become Blue Angels that were performed in the movie. So, um, yeah, I I think basically the F-35 just is not a glamorous aircraft because we all went back to CF-14s anyway. <laughs> so so your explanation there is that the cameras are sitting in the front seat pointed backwards and Tom Cruise yeah. is in the – got it. Okay. That makes total that's, sense. Th- that's how they filmed the majority – and that, not just Tom Cruise, but all of the pilots, a lot of their reactions were done in flying actual con- – in, in the aircraft, um, pulling Gs. And when you see the blackout in the movie – um, that's because they were doing it in real life. Yeah. So, and those were um, actors. And those were actors. So, I mean, it was definitely as realistic as you could possibly be. They were being filmed in dialogue while they were in combat aircraft flying. So if you haven't seen that movie yet, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> um, is, the, is the best best comment I could make because... Well, I haven't seen it yet, and the answer to your question would be pretty long and detailed. So, yeah, about yeah. what's wrong with me? <laughs> Can't wait to see it, though. Being that Max West and I are brothers, you know, we probably have similar problems. I haven't seen it either. Well, mom and, and dad, obviously, to. blame mom and dad. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> all right. Kind of a bit of a short episode this week. Uh, next week, we're taking off. Uh, some of us will be at the Air and Space Museum at the Uverhazi Center. I uh, hope to see you there. Uh, if you do attend, uh, look for us. Uh, Hillel is flying his plane in, and uh, he's he's planning on being there. We'll probably be uh, hanging out around Hillel's plane quite a bit. That might be a good a good plane a good place to go to find us um, during the the day Saturday. Um, but uh, so we'll have next week off. Following week, we've got uh, a rather interesting guest scheduled to come on. I think you'll find it. Uh, entertaining and interesting. So we look forward to that. Uh, meantime, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes at airplanegeeks.com slash 705. That's the direct shortcut link to the show notes. 
And, of course, our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Max Trescott, anything closing? Oh, sure. Let me just mention real quickly that our good friend Rob Mark is still recovering some from some medical procedures, and he is improving. Just talk to him, and he's uh, much, much better, which is good. So we hope to have him back here soon. And uh, for Aviation News Talk, just head on out to aviationnewstalk.com, click on Contact, and you can shoot me an email. Terrific. And how about you, David Vanderhoof? Uh, I guess the biggest event I've got coming up is um, the 25th of June. If you're in the Mid-Atlantic area, we will be having Family Fest at the museum. And um, believe it or not, uh, we found out where the airport was having an open house. So we're expecting at least 10 helicopters and probably 30 general aviation aircraft, as well as outside vendors and you get to see the final weekend of an exhibit called the presidency in the helicopter um, before it gets taken down forever um, and some other things. So definitely think um, if you want more information, just reach out to us and I'll, I'll be happy to get it to you again. That's the 25th. And it's Saturday. the American helicopter museum. And uh, what town is that in? It's outside of Philadelphia, but what town is that? Westchester, in? Pennsylvania, Westchester, Pennsylvania. That's right. I understand a brilliant historian put together that uh, American president helicopter uh, exhibit. Uh, I understand he's really an incredible guy. A historian, maybe. Brilliant, no. (laughs) But thank you for the compliment. Hey, can you videotape it so that we all get to see it so it lives on in perpetuity and stuff? I actually, we digitally created it. um, What we did basically had a company come in and um, and I – will be able to send um but basically we've they've created a virtual exhibit where you can go walk into the room and look at all the items um and read all the boards and stuff so yeah we'll and we'll be having that so yes the exhibit will not will live on in perpetuity via electrons but um but definitely and max remind me and i'll get a copy over to the link to you for the website that's fabulous Good to know. So does does that include like a uh, talking head David Vanderhoof explaining the exhibit or anything? No. Maybe a hologram. A hologram. No. I would have insisted on that, David. That would have been great. No. Immortalized in you know in the exhibit. With like a laser sword, you know. Okay. All right. Okay. Jedi David. Yes. Micah. Hey, I've got to say the best. The best museum tour I ever had, ever, in my life, and I've been on a lot of museum tours, was about 20 minutes when I first met David and he took me and my mom through the Smithsonian uh, Udvarhazy Center just to show off the highlights. And it was only 20 minutes, but David, what an incredible tour guide you are. Thank you for that still. In terms of finding me, you can find me online at Twitter at MainFly, that's M-A-I-N-E, like the state, Fly, F-L-Y. And if you want to find me in person, you'll be able to look me up at the uh, Spurwing Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In. That's coming up on July 10th in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. And Max, I'm hoping you're going to come up for that, Mr. Flight, and, uh, and hopefully uh, be there. Uh, you've talked about it, and uh, and Bill Barry, I'm talking to you. You've been threatening about coming, threatening about coming up to, to see that for years, too. So maybe now's the time. Yeah, for sure. I had a great time when I did that last time. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to trying to work out schedules, trying to make that happen. Um, Spurwing Farm. I also want to get back up to Owl's Head at some point too. That's uh, you know 
a, a great museum, great show that they put on there. So, yeah, lots of fun things to do this this summer aviation-wise. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me at 30,000feet.com. So we'll ask you to please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Have a great week. And thanks for listening.